0: In 2016, strange reports started coming out of Yorkshire in the north of England. It was said, mostly by tabloid newspapers it must be admitted, that a creature out of myth was once again stalking the fields and moors of this historic region. In August of that year, a 24-year-old animal rescue worker named Gemma Waller was on a pizza run, driving in the countryside near the Yorkshire town of Halsham. One of two friends in the car with her ...noticed a fox on a quiet lane, so they all turned to look. But instead of a fox, they saw a large creature rise from all fours onto two legs. Standing up straight, it walked towards the car. It was hairy but with a human-like face, perhaps as tall as eight feet. And it was, as Waller described, a werewolf. Stopping at a petrol station later that night... The friends recounted their sighting to the attendant and were astonished to learn that in fact the area had been notorious in times past for sightings of a werewolf-like creature known as Old Stinker. The event was one of a spate of sightings that was to result in a local werewolf hunt and a brief media flap in Yorkshire. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and from here at the cabin in the woods in Wild West Cork, I investigate stories of monsters, hauntings, UFOs, and fringe beliefs. We're critical, not cynical here at the cabin, and try to get to the facts of every case while still enjoying how a good story can teach us important things about the human condition. Well, it's turning cooler in the woods as the summer seegs into autumn. The leaves aren't turning just yet, but there's a chill in the air. As the nights get shorter, I'm reminded just how people used to feel quite at the mercy of nature, especially at this time of year. The howl of the wolf was a powerful symbol of this in Europe for centuries. And on this episode, we're going to examine the Yorkshire werewolf story in order to discuss modern legends, werewolves in general, and extinction guilt. As you may know, I usually choose an Irish craft beer for each episode, but as I did once live in North Yorkshire myself for almost a year, I've chosen a more region-appropriate bottle of black sheep ale made in Masham in Yorkshire, It's a solid mid-strength ale that reminds me of my own days up on the moors. So get yourself a beverage and join us for this episode, Old Stinker, the Yorkshire Werewolf. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body... Hi folks, you are welcome to The Cabin, and you are welcome to this episode. Kean here, and I have a bunch of shout-outs and thank-yous and sort of housekeeping stuff as usual, which I will do before we get into our werewolf episode. And I'm actually re-recording this because originally I didn't have too much to talk about, but a, a bunch of interesting things have come in since then, so I'm re-recording. First and foremost, we have received some fan mail, some physical posts it is of interest because it is a postcard from none other than no other place than Roswell, New Mexico. So, that's exciting. I'm a huge fan of obviously the 1947 Roswell incident and UFO lore in general. This has come to us from listener Jen, and Jen is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which I'm going to I'm going to do this thing where I like if I don't know anything about a place, I'll mention the only sort of uh, connotations I have. Um, as an Irish person the only thing I know about Albuquerque is Bugs Bunny cartoons when he comes up out of the ground and he's somewhere strange and he always says I knew I should have taken that left turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> so uh, sorry Jen that's the only thing I know about it but thank you very much for this wonderful postcard. It's got a goofy alien grey flying saucer crash cartoon on the front and on the back it says hello Kian, love your podcast looking forward to the podcast Alien Abduction episode and this is an actual bit of kit from roswell itself when you visited i'd love to go there sometime as well so huge thanks to jen that's brilliant i love it i'm going to put this up on the wall of the cabin uh, with other bits and pieces Uh, jen is referring to our recent alien abduction episode it was all about bud hopkins the guy who in the 1980s kind of popularized the notion of alien abduction and regression therapy hypnosis all of that sort of thing. It's a really good episode, we're very proud of it. If you haven't checked that one out, please go back and take a listen. Also this week we had some mail from Jacob from Oakland. So uh, Jacob says, this was over on Instagram. He said, oh, he was he found the podcast because he was looking for information about Sheridan Le Fanu. So Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, of course, a well-known Irish uh, Victorian-era writer of ghost stories. We did an episode about Le Fanu um, quite some time ago, actually. You might have to go back into the archives looking for that one. But he said that he he picked up a copy of Lafcadio Hearn's Japanese ghost stories. Lafcadio Hearn, also another Irish Gothic writer who we've covered on the show. Go back and take a listen to the episode, The Man Who Created Spooky New Orleans, for more information on that one. And uh, yeah, he said... uh, that he found the episode by looking for stories about these two gentlemen. He says, I had no idea about his New Orleans history, so it was very illuminating. Keep up the good work. Your stuff is very well researched and the shows are super interesting and I'll spread the word as best I can. So huge thanks, Jacob. That's really, really good of you. We do like people to um, spread the word. If indeed there's an episode that you really like and you think you know somebody who might like it, please do send it on to that person. It will really help to, to get the podcast out there. So... Oakland, California. What do I know about it? That's where Green Day are from. I was a huge Green Day fan back in the day. Um, He's originally from Maine and would be excited to hear coverage of New England stuff. I have been to New England only once. I traveled down from Canada, down through Vermont and some of those states up there in the uh, north and east. And it was actually at this time of year, it was a kind of an autumnal time of year, which is of course the stereotypical thing to do you're supposed to travel through new england in the autumn and let me tell you folks it's mind-blowing i i'm not going to go on about it just because it's a bit of a stereotype but it is well 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 worth doing um if you're in the area for any reason so thanks jacob and thanks to jen as well i'm just going to give you a little heads up on some forthcoming episodes things to get excited about Things that I'm working on in the long term and don't really know when they're going to happen. But firstly, I'm working really hard on getting all my information together for an episode on Borley Rectory. Borley Rectory, famously known as the most haunted house in England. It's a very long, convoluted story. It's uh, I've actually been there. I've been to the site of where Borley Rectory used to be. It's on the Essex-Suffolk border in, in the east of England. And it's associated with Victorian hauntings and going right up until the 1920s and 30s. It's associated with the famous flamboyant, over-the-top, sort of P.T. Barnum-type ghost hunter Harry Price in the 1930s and 40s. And there's so much stuff here. So I'm making my way through Ivan Banks' book, The Enigma of Borley Rectory. I've been watching the Carrion Films animated version of the story, which I highly recommend. I think it's on Amazon Prime. And I've been rereading Neil Spring's book, The Ghost Hunters, as well. It's a huge, complex story. I'm still deciding how I'm going to come at it, but I'm very excited about it. Anybody who, you know, has a history of being into ghost stories should know about Borley Rectory. If you don't, it's absolutely fascinating. So I'm excited about that. That might not happen until October. I might make it into some sort of Halloween sort of a special. We'll see what happens. Apart from that, I'm planning a double episode on the Hellfire Club in Dublin. So that's a basically a, a hunting lodge from, if I recall, the 1700s. It has a lot of folklore associated with it. It's a really spooky place up on a hill overlooking Dublin City in the middle of a forest. Uh, it's got connotations of sort of witchcraft, devil worship, debauchery of all kinds. There are many ghost stories associated with it as well. So what I'm probably going to do is upload an old episode of my old show, Strange Ireland, a scripted episode, fully researched, all about the folklore of the Hellfire Club. And then I'm actually organising a trip up to go and see it. And hopefully I can get some recordings and do a sort of road trip episode as well so that's going to be a two-parter so not sure when that's going to happen either hopefully by the end of the month anyway there'll be plenty of other good stuff in between but those are just a few things to keep you get a few things to look out for in the future and as always we love to have contact from you listeners out there so reach out to us on twitter where we are at strange ireland or on instagram where we are wide atlantic weird podcast I'd like to mention that the 2010 Wolfman film, the remake of the forties one, though not a good film, I, I will admit, uh, for for many reasons, the one with Benicio del Toro. But it's it's a bit of a guilty pleasure, bit of a per, you know personal guilty pleasure for me. It's probably my favourite screen iteration of a sort of an exaggerated, cartoony, almost Tim Burtonish Hollywood version of spooky Victorian England. It's got that colour desaturation. It's got lovely photography. It's got spooky brooding mansions on the moors. It's got mist. It's got uh, turn-of-the-century London. Um, I love all that sort of thing. So spooky Victorian England is absolutely my jam. And you know what? There's something special about seeing a time period that you're very interested in realized in a big budget film even if the film is rubbish even if the filmmakers were not interested in accuracy or anything it just there's something about a film that pulls you in and makes you feel like you're there so there's a tremendous amount of atmosphere to that film even if the script and and the the pacing and everything is all wrong Uh, plus Emily Blunt I like Emily Blunt guys I like her so why am I talking about this because I watched the 2010 Wolfman recently I saw it when it came out in the cinema and I was all hyped for it and I was hoping it was going to be good and it really isn't but I I I like how they introduced the concept of werewolves in that film in particular werewolves in England kind of without any context and that's the same thing that was done back in um 1980 with of course American werewolf in London which is probably still the best um 1981 sorry the probably still the best werewolf movie if we're being honest with ourselves and one of very few I can be bothered with these days. It's it's something that it's such a great idea that hasn't been utilized as well as it might have been. Perhaps I mean one thing people often say is that the werewolf lacks a a, like a single core text. It doesn't have a classic novel, or at least a single classic novel, the way Dracula or Frankenstein do. And as such, it, it it is more of a folkloric thing that has accumulated over centuries. And actually, most of the bits and pieces we now associate with werewolf lore sort of seem to come together in the 19th century and then crystallizing in the with the Universal movies in the 1940s. But werewolves in England, is it a thing? It does seem to have been, been a stereotype um, of movies since the 1940s. Obviously, the first Wolfman takes place Uh, ostensibly in Wales. They mentioned going to Cardiff at one point. So there is this idea that, oh you know, England back in the day was a place of myth and mystery and werewolves and I was just interested as to where this modern legend comes from because I was under the impression that actually there hadn't been much werewolf lore in England by comparison with France and continental Europe. So that's what I wanted to find out to get started on this journey as to what is the appropriate cultural context for this insane 2016 werewolf sighting. So I reached for my trusty Book of Werewolves by Sabine Baring Gould from 1865, because that's the sort of thing that I tend to do. I bought this book in Cork, in probably in Vibes and Scribes when I was in college. I don't know what I thought it was going to be. I wasn't into researching Victorian texts at the time, and I, I remember being disappointed by it and finding it a bit of a stiff read, but... For research purposes, <clears throat> I, I come back to this once in a while. Sabine Baring-Gould was a a, a churchman from Devon in the Victorian times, and he's one of the There was absolutely a tradition of these, like stiff, you know, stiff-necked, stiff-collared, uh, Church of England gentlemen from that time who were obsessed with collecting ghost stories and folklore and stuff like that. And he was one of these guys. Basically, he had many, many books, and he covered many, many subjects, but when you see him today he seems to be mostly remembered for writing about goose ghosts and ghouls and goblins and, and, and folklore and stuff so in his book of werewolves from 1865 Sabine Baring Gould has much to say on werewolf lore from the continent and less to say about werewolf lore in England and he even has some stuff to say about werewolf lore from Ireland which of course whenever there's an Irish connection I have to go there and investigate. We don't we don't focus specifically on Irish stories on this show, but I do like to work in a connection if I can. So I was excited to see. Sabine Baring Gould does tell one story about Ireland and werewolves. He says, St. Patrick is said to have changed uh, Veridicus, the king of Wales, into a wolf, and St. Natalus, the abbot, to have pronounced anathema upon an illustrious family in Ireland. In consequence of which every male and female take the form of wolves for seven years and live in the forests and career over the bogs, howling mournfully and appeasing their hunger upon the sheep of the peasants, pretty cool now, I'm adhering to a fairly wide definition of what a werewolf is here, and and, and so is Gould to be honest, if we take it as any story in which a human can turn into a wolf under any circumstances, well, yeah, then some of this stuff, I guess, you you could count as the prehistory of the idea. Uh, sent in by friend of the show Victoria Pearson this week, another story about werewolves in Ireland. This one comes from the book Haunted Ireland by Tarkin Blake from 2014. Again, adhering to a pretty broad definition of the term werewolf, but um, this story goes like this. The legend of the werewolf can be found in many tales of Irish folklore. One tradition relates that in distant times the people of Ossory, an ancient kingdom, comprising most of the modern-day counties of Kilkenny and Leish, had the power to change themselves into wolves whenever they pleased. When an Ossorian took the form of a wolf, his human body remained in his home as if he were asleep, and if any hurt was caused to his human body, then he was doomed to live out the rest of his life as a wolf, Whilst in wolf shape he was fierce and bloodthirsty and ravenously roamed the fields and forests in search of sheep and cattle to devour. If caught in the act of eating a sheep, then the werewolf would normally run home to assume his human form. If now confronted as a human, he would appear as innocent as a lamb. A closer inspection would, however, reveal splashes of blood here and there and bits of raw flesh stuck in his teeth. These legends probably originate in the oldest written record of werewolves, left by Geraldus Cambrensis, a royal clerk and chaplain to King Henry II of England. Geraldus joined one of the king's sons, John, in his 1185 expedition to Ireland and recorded the journey in his book, Topographia Hibernica, written in Latin and finally illustrated. In the book, he gave. I won't continue. So, that's interesting to me because it suggests that. The earliest records coming from England of werewolf and werewolfery uh, refer not to England but to Ireland and uh, presumably other places as well. One other reason I put this story in here is just to give an example of the sort of oldie-worldie versions of what werewolves were. So prior to the 19th and, and certainly prior to the 20th century, this idea of werewolfism as, as a curse was not common. I mean, that we think of it now as from films it's something you're you're afflicted with you're bitten by a werewolf and then this horrible curse comes upon you and it's something that you don't want but in 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 ages past it was not the case werewolfism was much closer to witchcraft and devil worship and it was mixed up with those in, in in lots of ways which we'll get to but werewolfism was something you did deliberately it was It was basically, you were messing with black magic, you were worshipping demons, and, and they were granting you this power, or you had done some sort of black magic to get the power to turn into a wolf deliberately for evil means. So quite different to the version of the werewolf that we know now. But to return to England, what does Sabine Baring Gould have to say about England and werewolves? So he says, "'English folklore is singularly barren of werewolf stories,' the reason being that wolves have been extirpated from England under the Anglo-Saxon kings and therefore ceased to be objects of dread to the people. The traditional belief in werewolfism must, however, have remained long in the popular mind, though at present it has disappeared, for the word occurs in old ballads and romances. Uh, Berengould then gives a quote of a poem where he says, "'Was it war-wolf in the wood, or was it mermaid in the sea?' Or was it man or vile woman, my ain true love that misshaped thee? So this sounds to me as if he's saying, you know, in England, people knew what a werewolf was. the The word exists in literature, but it's from an earlier time because the wolf has been gone for so long. Notice also in this poem, he quotes. He they're talking about somebody who has been misshapen, presumably somebody who's been struck by dark magic. And, and the poem asks, was it a werewolf, was it a mermaid, was it a witch? And, and you see how the werewolf idea back then is just mixed up in this almost generic way. It's mixed up with witchcraft and demon worship and other things. Um, Sabine Berengold gould goes on to say, "...in the popular mind, the cat or the hare have taken the place of the wolf for witch's transformation, and we hear often of the hags attending the devil's Sabbath in these forms." So anyone familiar with witchcraft lore in, in Britain or surrounding countries will be well aware of the the prominence of the cat and the hare. There's a lot of stories about witches turning into hares. And actually they parallel, some of those stories parallel werewolf stories in that there's this motif of a, a mysterious animal being chased, whether it's a wolf or or a hair, and then some damage is caused to the animal. They'll shoot an eye or an ear, and then they find a human at the end of the story who's got the same injury as the animal. And yeah, that's something that shows up in both strands of folklore. By and large, Sabine Berenguel gould sees lycanthropy in terms of witchcraft, curses, or, or insanity. He does talk about the idea that this is just all in people's heads. He also talks about black dogs in England quite a bit, Uh, sort of like the black shuck dogs but again i i think that's a different strand of folklore Uh, folks who know more than i might see them as being related or or might see crisscrossing of the streams there but to me it's it's kind of a different thing it doesn't really speak to the sort of more contemporary werewolf lore that I'm, i'm trying to get to so just for a comparison what are people saying about what's happening on the continent at this time so from the book Maleficium, maleficium, excuse me for my poor Latin, uh, by Gordon Napier. On Okay, so in the chapter Witchcraft, Werewolves and Possessions in France, Napier writes, Belief in werewolves or lycanthropes was also associated with witchcraft in France. Boyne heard several confessions combining witchcraft and lycanthropy. A man called Bourgeot, along with two other suspects, confessed under torture to making a satanic pact, and to committing murders while in the form of a wolf. Later, one Gilles Garnier of the Franche Comte was accused of being both a witch and a werewolf. Garnier was a reclusive woodsman who had been a hermit, but it seems he had somehow subsequently acquired a wife. In 1753 he came to be accused of murdering and on occasion devouring several local children, sometimes in the form of a wolf, sometimes in human form. Supposedly, Garnier was ultimately caught in the act by a group of men who went out seeking the creature responsible for the deaths, and who found Garnier hunched over the body of his final victim. At his trial, Garnier claimed that a demon had visited him, gifting him with an ointment that brought about his transformation in order to assist his hunting. Cool. So a couple of things to note here. Firstly, note the date, 1753. So this is early modern. This is not medieval. And that kind of fits in with when the bulk of the witch trials were actually happening. I know there's a stereotype of it as a as a medieval thing, but, but by and large, it was mostly quite a bit later. Also, yeah, notice how this werewolf thing is not like how we think about it today. It's very clearly this fellow trying to deliberately become a werewolf by making deals with demons. Um, which again was a thing that was always happening in witch trials and and using an ointment uh, to put on his body to make the transformation happen. Another common way was taking your clothes off and putting them in a circle and doing certain rites or wearing the pelt of a wolf or making a wolf suit. So there's lots of different ways that um, this transformation is affected in the folklore. So, I want to talk about something that happens in the in the 19th century because that's sort of when things start to become more like the werewolf that we know today. If if we accept the idea that werewolf lore stuck around longer on the continent because there were wolves on the continent longer, they weren't made extinct um, until quite a bit later. Then there's other strands happening here and there's other there's other changes happening in society. So in the middle of the 19th century you have darwin writing on the origin of species of course which changes everything and rocks everything and the the sort of archetype of the wild man the sort of subconscious need for an understanding of our connection with nature and with the wild which of course has changed radically since the industrial revolution becomes incredibly important and i feel that it changes that the singular figure changes from the wolf to the ape and this is all tied into ideas ultimately from Darwinism. So you get the wolf as being a less important figure, you know, a symbol of the wild, and then you get the ape as being this very tremendously loaded symbol of our direct connection to nature and to animals. And it's about this time that generic stories about wild men, um, in folklore, in early what might late later be called cryptozoology, start to become more like ape-like wild men. And this shows up all around the world in all of the colonized countries all of the the empire controlled countries so australia and um, canada and north america all independently start springing up these traditions of you know wild men that have been found in these crazy places even in england there's a still a few of these stories going on perhaps a, a leftover memory of the what, what's called the woodwose who's a sort of a medieval christian um, allegorical figure it's all very complicated but it's just an interesting time how the the ape-man becomes more prominent as the personification of the wild and i do think a lot of that is is due to the effect of darwin and um, more recently as in in the last 10 years this trend has turned again and i think that the study of of the strange is undergoing a shift once again it's going i think it's going back into more sort of floaty lighty paranormal stuff and i think even various strands of cryptozoology are going that way at the moment. I'm referring of course to the resurgence of the so-called dogman stories which is largely in the US kind of starts in uh, Wisconsin and places like that in the 1970s and 80s but like the dogman is, as a as an anthropomorphic dog or wolf-like figure kind of does harken back to these old werewolf stories it's definitely not like a real physical creature that you're going to go out and hunt the way people went hunting for Bigfoot in the 50s. This is like a creature out of time and out of space. There's no logical zoological um, sort of context for it. It just couldn't possibly exist the way it is in the places where it's being seen. So I, I'm more interested in the physical zoological, cryptozoological stuff than I am in the, the mystical supernatural stuff. I'm always a tiny bit disappointed when one strand of this goes that way, but it does seem to be a little bit inevitable. So the Dogman stories are more more urban legendy, more ghost stories-y. They're just this thing that literally couldn't be. But it definitely strikes me as a modern resuscitation or a modern interpretation of the, the old original mystical and, and overtly supernatural werewolf stuff. So to return to the UK to try and get to the bottom of the origin of Contemporary UK werewolf lore? Well, I took out a copy of Three Men Seeking Monsters by Nick Redfern, which is a book that has some fun stuff in it and has some silly stuff in it. It's a fairly silly book. It's from 2004 and it's basically Redfern about to leave the UK to go and live in America. And one of his last hurrahs is to go on a road trip with his two buddies and, you know, hunt down all of these various local legends. One thing I do like is that he gives you these little hints and clues as to very localized weird hominid reports, weird humanoid reports. There's not always a lot of information to back them up, um, but it is interesting. You know, Redfern is okay as a sort of a repository of odd stories, certainly rather than maybe an investigator, but I found some good stuff in it regarding this werewolf lore. So he writes... The researcher Andy Roberts had written about a strange creature that had been seen in the vicinity of Flixton in the north of England in AD 940. The beast, said Andy, appeared to have been a combination of a black dog, a phantom felid, and a werewolf. It was popularly described as possessing abnormally large eyes that glowed in the dark, had a long tail, and exuded a terrible stench. The creature also attacked and mutilated livestock, dogs and even people and it was said at the time the beast was being manipulated by a magician. The fog of time has effectively ensured that the full facts pertaining to the Flixton werewolf will continue to remain a mystery. Okay, I like this story for a couple of reasons. Firstly Flickston in up in the north of England and Yorkshire were getting closer to sort of like Hull and the Halstead and the region of the 2016 reports and actually the town of Flixton is going to become important secondly this story wherever Andy Roberts is getting it from goes back to supposedly 940 AD so that's a decently old story as we'll see things will get murky very quickly as soon as we try and put dates on some of these stories incidentally this information originally comes from Andy Roberts 1986 book Cat Flaps which is mostly about uh, big cat sightings alien big cat sightings in the north of England okay so let's get up to may of 2016 so a number of sightings are reported in of all places the hull daily mail and this is primarily a tabloid story and make of that what you will i'm going to take i'm going to take sort of tabloid ideas about the supernatural as being a one of many contemporary forms of folklore and how it spreads because this is how a lot of people are getting their own information about the supernatural and this is how some of these stories are spreading. So the the articles themselves are several and they repeat a lot of the information and there's a bit of a, a cycle going on of various tabloid newspapers sort of reporting the same facts and picking and choosing from each other and it's it's a bit of a mess trying to find out what really happened or in what order. But there is mention of a place called Bar- Barmston Drain, um, which is the site of various sightings of a large, hairy, werewolf-like creature made in May of 2016. It's variously referred to as being eight feet tall. Um, it's seen with a, a dead German shepherd in its mouth, and uh, it's seen bounding along the drain, going from four legs up to two, and disappearing into the houses uh, alongside the drain. So the Barmston Drain is part of a large-scale industrial project dating to the late 1700s to sort of dry out the moors and the marshes of the area. Now I think that's important because industrialization is going to be a theme here and we're, we're going to get to it. It seems to be the case that most of these stories, reading between the lines, seem to be connected to a local writer and historian by the name of Mike Covell. So, this is quite common. We'll have seen this before with with people like John Keel, where a whole spate of sightings in an area actually seems to be tied to one writer or one individual, which gives you something to to think about. Uh, Mike Coble describes himself as a historian and a writer. I'm sure he is both, but he's also tremendously interested in writing about weird things, as I am myself, and has written quite a bit about... UFO encounters and meetings with so-called black-eyed children in the same area. So, again, a touch of the John Keel here, a touch of the window area, which we will get to uh, very shortly as well. This brings us up to the August 2016 case. That's the one I opened the episode with, where Gemma Waller, who is a sort of an animal rescue person in Halsham, in Yorkshire, I think I said Halstead earlier, my apologies, and... The story where she's driving on a road with two friends going to get pizza and they see the werewolf next to the car. Now, I got some good information on this from a website called Anomaly Info, which is tremendous. When it comes to sort of sourcing this stuff and getting primary sources, uh, this website is, is absolutely fantastic. I'll put a note for it in the show notes because I recommend, if you're interested in any of these weird stories and you're wondering what really happened, where did this story come from, um, Anomaly Info is just tremendous. It's it's brilliant. So Anomaly Info points out that Gemma Waller, though she was widely reported as being uh, an animal rescue worker, which she is, but her other main job is that of being a paranormal investigator with a company or a group called Most Haunted Experiences who seem to run uh, sort of paranormal-themed public events. Now, does that mean that the werewolf sighting wasn't real? Is it impossible for somebody who uh, studies this stuff and works with this stuff to have a genuine encounter? Of course not. Does it paint it in a slightly different light, especially when this fact wasn't made clear or was taken out in the newspaper reports? It does. It is a bit of a red flag. So the original story was that after she has the encounter, she stops off at a, at a petrol station, mentions what happened, and the attendant says, oh, but this has been the site of various other encounters as well and he's presumably referring to the may 2016 sightings which at this point have been in the newspapers in the whole daily mail so what anomaly info points out is that if you do the if you follow the trail basically via this woman's facebook it seems more likely that she went she on the night that this encounter happened they were hosting a paranormal event and that's why she was going for pizza so this pizza was for everybody attending this ghost night at a local house and when they got back after seeing the werewolf she was told by the other enthusiasts at the paranormal event about the May sightings. So the story has altered a little bit because of the way whole Daily Mail wrote this up. Um, so yeah, just a few key differences there. It doesn't prove anything or disprove anything. Just interesting to observe how a story evolves and how a legend grows in in real time. Now, is there any history to this? um, Barnston, the Beast of Barnston Drain, as he's sometimes called, uh, the Old Stinker. Basically, we've had references already from Andy Roberts to the the stink of the beast as well, and that's part of its name. So all of these newspaper reports say, oh, it's an established legend in the area, and it's called Old Stinker, and it's been associated with the area for hundreds of years. So. They all state that there were sightings back in the 1700s. And I I found this bit of writing from a fellow called Charles Christian. He writes about this area. Part of the country was once infested with wolves. Up until the 18th century, there was still a wolf bounty for anyone killing them. It was known for the wolves to dig up the corpses from graveyards. From that sprung the idea that they were supernatural beings who took the form of werewolves there is the legend of a werewolf called Old Stinker, a great hairy beast with red eyes who was so called because he had bad breath. When I was a child, I remember someone saying they would not drive along the road from Flixton to Bridlington after dark because of those fears. So that implies there was a pre existing legend in the area, and again we have note of the town of Flixton, which ties into Andy Roberts' supposed um uh, 940 AD sighting, which is interesting. All of the newspaper reports also point out that the last time this beast was seen was an attack on a driver of a truck in Hull in 1960. Supposedly he's driving on a country road and sees the beast and it tries to break into his cab but uh, fails to do so but cracks his windscreen. I can't find any evidence of this myself besides these newspaper reports which all seem to be citing one another or, or pulling from each other's information. If anyone out there listening has more information on this I'd love to know please do write in but the most interesting thing I found about this whole case is a paper called Wolves in the Walls: Late Capitalism the English Eerie and the Weird Case of Old Stinker weird of course spelled with a Y, just the way we like it here and <clears throat> this is by a woman named Sam M. George who seems to be the don of this sort of thing she was the mover and shaker behind the UK's first werewolf like academic werewolf conference a few years ago which is exciting i wish i'd been there so there's lots of interesting things in this paper which i'm going to mention a lot of it's got to do with just this location this area what its vibe is what its folklore is and yeah okay so let she starts off with something i've noticed already she says this very english werewolf is curiously absent from universal accounts of the werewolf but he can be found in descriptions of Yorkshire's weird walls, existing as local or particularised knowledge. Travelogues or tourist accounts describe the Yorkshire walls as a relatively small crescent of rolling, chalky countryside, arcing from glorious Philly, with its miles of golden beaches in the north, to bustling Hessel, home of the world-famous Humber Bridge in the south. The walls' many myths and legends are unmatched, According to Charles Christian, the author of a travel guide to Yorkshire's weird walls (2016), they include quote, vampires, green-skinned fairy folk, headless ghosts, screaming skulls, a black skeleton, sea serpents, England's oldest buildings, enchanted wells, and of course, werewolves. He has identified what he terms the Wald Newton Triangle, an uncanny region where most of these beasts and sightings can be located. And he then shows a map of where he reckons this mysterious triangle to be. Uh, scholars of The Strange will, of course, immediately pick out numerous connections here to other things. The The Walt Newton Triangle sounds like the Walt Newton universe, which is a sort of a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen-type shared universe of fa- fantastic fiction by, I think, Philip Jose Farmer is the name. Of he was a science fiction writer. Uh, the, the notion of a triangle, of course, of weirdness, and puts you in the frame of mind of the the Welsh UFO triangle from the nineteen seventies, or obviously the the more famous uh, Bermuda Triangle. But the whole idea of window areas in general, the notion of a one place where a wide amount of different spooky things happen, goes right back to John Keel and the Mothman prophecies once again. Now, if you want to know more about that, we did an episode about the Mothman prophecies. Few, maybe a month ago, it's called "Beyond the Mothman Prophecies," and uh, it's good. We really get into this concept of window areas, where that comes from, and and the the really vast influence that it's had on paranormal thinking, going right up to what we're to- looking at now from from 2016. Note once again that the main location for Old Stinker, according to this, seems to be Flixton, which is about 35 miles away from hull but it seems to be hull where the bulk of the 2016 uh, sightings are happening now sam m george is doing numerous things here one interesting thing is tying this recent resurgence of accounts to a resurgence of interest in what you might call english eerie uh, the resurgence of interest in folk horror which i think we're seeing in, in in films at the moment uh, so that's one of the angles. It's an attempt to perhaps re-enchant the landscape. So in especially that the north of England is is both beautiful and, and famous for for national parks. But it's also an area that's very heavily associated with the urbanization and the industrialization that took place after the Industrial Revolution. And you've got these two con- conflicting sort of vibes, the, these two conflicting types of psychogeography, if you want to call it that. And and these popping up of, of these almost inexplicable uh, folkloric monsters, these almost seemingly impossible monsters, really feels like something from the subconscious that's popping up to address maybe anxieties we have about what we've done to the landscape, what we've done to nature, how we've severed our connection with nature. And I, I really like this idea, and I think that these ideas underpin much of sort of old-fashioned English horror that we associate with the maybe the early 20th century with the writings of people like M.R. James, which is now coming back with movies like uh, The Witch, which is a very, obviously, a North American version, but still very folk horror, very tied to the land, very tied to our relationship to the land. Now, I'm going to read briefly from George again, just to talk about what is the... If we're accepting that... All, you know the where the werewolf stories have lasted and where they haven't is tied to when there were last actually wolves historically in the area. I'm just going to read a little bit about that <clears throat> um, He says the eradication of the British wolf is largely due to the campaigns of English monarchs. King Edgar, who reigned from nine fifty nine to nine seventy five was the first monarch to set about cleansing and ridding the country of these ravenous creatures. It was thought that within four years of his campaigns no wolves would remain in Wales and England. Dead wolves were coveted as trophies in Anglo-Saxon Britain, and Edgar demanded that his Welsh subjects pay him 300 wolf wolf skins a year. Some criminals were encouraged to pay their debts in wolf tongues. English wolves were almost totally eradicated under the reign of Henry VII. Uh, Wolves held out in Ireland until the 1700s, though they were extinct in Scotland by the late 1600s. British and Irish wolves were exterminated much earlier than wolves across Europe, the total extinction of which did not occur until the 1800s. Which ties in nicely with the way in which werewolf lore uh, sort of pops up and then disappears in these various countries. I'm going to hop on from this and use it to talk about the concept of extinction guilt. So this is the idea that Even, I mean, some of us, like myself, uh, have worked in conservation and are deeply aware of what's happening with, uh, we're basically in the middle of a mass extinction event, and we've done an episode about this previously, which I am very proud of. So go back and take a listen to um, the anti-environmentalist bias of conspiracy theories. I'm very proud of it. Um, I'd love to know what people think about it. But I do think even people who are not dealing with this stuff every day, who are not working with it and who are not exactly paying attention, I think subconsciously we all know that we've had this massive uh, change on the landscape. Anyone who's ever looked out the window of an aeroplane and seen what we do to the landscape, anyone who, even people who enjoy the countryside and enjoy the rolling hills and um, the farms and the fields, those are all things we have done to tame the landscape. They are not natural and they are semi-natural as a result of what we have done to the landscape so even if you're not directly aware of this it's underneath it's you know underneath somewhere festering and and bubbling away and i think that so-called extinction guilt comes up in strange ways you could also argue that our sort of acceptance of nature was bigger than us for most of human history it was more powerful than us and something to be feared i would say that tide started to turn at some point in, in the 1800s and really people were starting to notice it and be aware of it by the 1940s and 50s the same point at which the imperial age is coming to an end and people's desire for uh, you know new frontiers to go and have adventures and prove themselves both of these kind of come together i think in in what we might conceive of the modern cryptozoology movement so the idea that the belief that there must still be places we can go where there are unknown mon- animals or monsters or adventures still to be had you know, there's a bit of crossover with, with the werewolf stuff and, and with some of this more paranormal animal stuff. The fact that they are animals at all, I think, is, is significant. And I think they have powerful mythological and symbolic um, importance as well. So <clears throat> that's an idea about that encompasses cryptozoology in the whole, but also other kinds of paranormal thought. Finally, George points out that the timing of these reports, 2015 and 16, kind of kicked off just as the potential rewilding of parts of the country in the UK were starting to become big news. The idea that we might deliberately put back some of these larger animals into places, so-called charismatic megafauna. It's actually happened recently in in parts of Scotland and, and Wales and England with, with beavers. Um, I will say, with success in terms of ecological success, not necessarily sociological success. There are a lot of people who don't like this and have done terrible things as a result. Um, It is a very difficult process to pull off effectively and to keep the population on side. We have been separated from a lot of these large predatory animals for several hundreds of years now and putting them back into the environment without making adequate sort of preparations for them, both physically, ecologically and and in terms of our mindset is going to is doomed to failure really unless we successfully change the mindset of people so these are big changes they deal with deep deep guilts and deep um, unsettling feelings that we may have about our relationship to nature in general and <clears throat> george is just pointing out that the the sightings of this animal coming up at this time this this need to reenchant the landscape to make it once again wild and wonderful even even if it's in a way which is is totally unbelievable it it performs a a necessary and deep sort of psychological act of of repair shall we say anyway to wrap things up and just to let you know that this folklore is indeed uh, wild and kicking and still alive today while trawling the various blogs of people talking about these sightings today i came across uh, one gentleman, who, who shall remain nameless, uh, quoting and uh, uh, replying to a, a bit of minor scepticism on the part of the author and saying, It is a shame that most of the Flixton info is wrong. Being local to the area and knowing people who live in Flixton, I can tell you that this beast, whatever it is, is still being seen. I think it may even be spirit form. One old man I spoke with, now aged 88, says he saw as a young boy, beside Sharp Howe. Another report came from Spittle Corner at Staxton. I do not think it helps when the information that is put out is wrong. I am holding back most of what I have found out about Flixton, because I think people are just happy to copy the info without really looking into it. Flixton, after all, is still known by some locals as Wolfland. And that about wraps it up for this episode, folks. Thanks very much for sticking with us. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. I really do appreciate comments, commentary, um, politely worded corrections, all that good stuff. If you have any other ideas for episodes or if anything weird has ever happened to you, we'd love to know about it. As we always say, we want to believe, but the evidence has to be good. So once again, you can find us on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. You can find us on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists, it's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. And you will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.